0: Welcome to this week's Rashi Shear, brought to you from the Bet Midrash of Mizrahi in Melbourne, Australia. So, welcome to this week's Shear on Rashi. We are up to Perik Tet Vav, which is the story of the Brit Benavatarim, arguably. The most seminal event in Jewish history because it leads to everything else at least the way the Midrashim and Rashi explain it and we are in the middle of Pasuk Tet Vav. so after Hashem tells Abraham uh, that there will be a period of 400 years when his descendants will be in a land not theirs and that will include a period this is the way Rashi explains it of exile in another country and slavery and oppression there and then they will come out of that country. And then Hashem says to Abraham, tavo el you will go to your fathers, i.e., you will die. We talked about that last week. shalom in peace. Tikaver the Tova. You will be buried at a good old age. So, what does it mean to be buried at a good old age? Um, if he's going to his father, which is clearly a way of saying dying, we know he's going to die. Presumably, he's going to be buried. So, what is the significance of *b'seiver tovah*? So, that is the question that Rashi answers, and he says, to. biyamav*. So, two things. The first is that Yishmael will do teshuvah in his days, in other words, in Avraham's days, and we know that Abba Rashi in *peret kafay pasuk tet* says from the fact that at the burial of abraham yitzhak is mentioned before yishmael rashi explains that that means yitzhak sorry that yishmael deferred to yitzhak even though yitzhak was the younger son and that was the proof um, that yishmael did teshuva and says rashi that is the seva tova that his son who had gone bad will become good again and then he says And Esav, his grandson, who overlapped uh, with the life of Abraham, did not go out to bad culture or bad practice in his days, in Abraham's days. Now, we know that Esav, according to Rashi, was a very bad person. And on the day that he came to eat the soup that Yaakov was making, Esau, according to Rashi, had done a number of bad things that day. And ya- Rashi explains that Esau was, sorry, Yitzchak, sorry again, Yaakov was making soup, It soup with lentils, which are round, because it was food for mourners, because Abraham had died that day. And um, that was the day that the, the soup was sold. And that was the day that Esau did a lot of bad things. And says Rashi here that, Esau did not go to bad things until that day, until Abraham died. So while Abraham was alive, his grandson was still a well behaved young man. Continues Rashi, Ulaficha mate Chamesh Shanim Kodem Zamano. And therefore, Abraham died five years before his time. So how do we know his time was an extra five years? Because Yitzchak died at 180. And Avram died at 175. Yaakov died at 137, I think. Yes, no, 147. That's right, 147, um, which is 33 years less than um, 180. And there's a story that he was punished when, I, when Paro asked him how old he was. And he replied saying, my life has been very bitter. The number of words in that passage is 33. So ya- Yaakov lost 33 years from his life, hence he died at 147. So whether we go into that quite midrashic analysis or not, we have Yitzhak living at 180 and Abraham living at 175. So and that is the day when Abraham was 175. We can work out easily that Esau was 15, and that's the day that Esau went bad. So it says Rashi, two things. Well, two things and a third thing. Um, I'll come back to the first two things. The third thing is, Rashi says, in order to establish that Aesop didn't go bad while Abraham was alive, Abraham had to die five years early. So number one, Rashi is answering a side question. Why did Abraham die five years younger than um, Yitzchak? There seems to be some sort of correlation between Tidkut and long life. And if Yitzchak merited 180 years, why didn't Abraham merit 180 years? So he's answered that question. Avram had to die early so that he didn't overlap with Esau going bad. You could ask, why didn't Hashem delay Esau's Aesop, uh, going bad for another five years until Abram was ready to die at age 180? So the Mephoshim ask that, and they answer saying, everyone has Bechira, and Hashem never takes away that Bechira. So Esau had the and the free will, to choose his own path, and he chose at the age of 15 to choose a bad path. So... I, I don't think that Rashi is just giving us interesting biographical information. He brings this point to confirm what he's just said. He's confirmed that Asav did not go on a bad path while Abraham was alive. And we can see that from the very fact that Abraham died in 175. So that bit about Abraham's death date, Abraham dying five years before his time, I think Rashi brings to confirm, to back up what he just said, about the Seva Tova, the good old age, being that Aesop did not go bad in Abraham's lifetime. So that's the third thing that Rashi said. Let's go back to the first two. So what does it mean that he had a good old age? Number one, his son did Teshuvah. Number two, his grandson didn't go bad. And presumably all the rest of his offspring didn't go bad or, or had done Teshuvah. The rest of his offspring were the six Banei Keturah, uh, whom we'll learn about uh, in a few centuries' time probably several years ago. They went off to the east. We don't know anything about them. Um, The implication from this Rashi is that they didn't go bad, or maybe if they did go bad, that wasn't a concern to Abraham because they were far away. Um, Yitzchak is his son. Obviously, he was good. Yaakov is his other grandson. Obviously, he was good. So that just leaves Yishmael and Aesop. And the good old age is that Yishmael did teshuva and Aesop hadn't gone bad. I was wondering if there's some sort of drosher here about how one generation did go bad, but came back. And that's Seva Tova, when your son does Teshuvah. And in another generation for your grandson, the Seva Tova is he didn't go bad in the first place. Uh, I think there's an interesting contrast and compliment there, but I'm not quite sure where to go with that. But anyway, the point is that Rashi is explaining what is the Seva Tova? Why do we have to be told? Why does Abraham have to be told that he'll have a good old age? And what does it mean? Continues the Pasuk. So, again, the, the main theme that we've just covered is that they will be exile for four, for a to- in a land not theirs and in slavery for a total of 400 years. And then in Ted Zion, the promise of the Brit Benavataran continues with the door revee and the fourth generation will return here because the sin of the emirates will not be complete until then so the big question is who is the fourth generation the fourth generation of what of whom and when do you start counting and the different before have different answers to that question rashi's answer is like this the la l'achashi after they are exiled to Mitzrayim, Yehi Sham Dorot. There will be there four generations. And the fourth will return to this land. Now, there's a few things already that he said, but let's just deal with the last one. He's now going to explain why it's this land, even for people who have never been in this land. So by saying that it's the fourth generation after they go to Mitzrayim, and we'll come back to that point. So it means the people who are coming back to Eretz Israel, it's, it's a little bit hard to say they're coming back because they were born in Mitzrayim. They've lived all their lives in Mitzrayim. So what does it mean? Yashuvu, they will return. And what does it mean? Haina? they will return here. So Rashi explains that with his next words. Lefi sheba Eretz Kanan haya medaber imo. Because in the land of Canaan, he, Hashem, was speaking with him, Abraham, and made this covenant. As it says in the early passage, to give you this land as an inheritance. So Hashem is talking in Eretz Canaan about Eretz Canaan. And that is why he said, I'm talking about when the fourth generation will return here because since they have left here not the same individuals but the same nation or the same family which becomes a tribe which becomes a nation were here i know i'm were here because i'm talking i hashem i'm talking to you abraham here they're going to go away and they're going to come back here even though it's not literally the same people coming back now this really follows the first thing but the Dora v is the fourth generation after they have been exiled to egypt so rashi has to clarify that it's not the fourth generation from abraham and the reason i think he's not the fourth generation from abraham is because the numbers don't work because the exodus and the return to israel happened 430 years later last 40 years in the desert we'll come back to that in a minute and so 470 years you're not gonna find four generations from Abraham for 470 years that will bring them back. So says Rashi, where do we start counting the four generations? From those who went to Egypt. Now he has to make that point because he's explained the 400 years which is mentioned in Pasuk Yud-Gimel and not all being in Egypt. Rashi made the point that only 210 of those years were in Egypt, the other 190 were when Abraham, Yitzhak and Yaakov were in a land not theirs, actually really starting with the birth of Yitzchak, but they weren't yet in Egypt. So you might have thought the fourth generation will be the fourth generation from the beginning of the period of the prophecy, from when the 400 years starts. But Rashi has to say it's not. It's from the 400 years, sorry, the fourth generation from when they go to Egypt. And I suspect because he has no alternative to say that because you will not find four generations from Abraham returning back uh, after the exodus. So then Rashi continues um, with the words "V'chein haya," and so it was. It was the fourth generation. Yaakov yared leMitzrayim. Sevachashuv dorotav. So Yaakov was one who went down to Egypt. Come and calculate his generations. Yehuda, Peretz, Chetzron, the Kalev ben Chetzron. Miboy haAretz haya. Interestingly, he doesn't count Yaakov because either because Yaakov is not. A generation, he's just a family, or he actually is an individual because he counts his son Yehuda as the first generation. Yaakov is just an individual, that doesn't count as a generation, or it was because it was the very end of his life, it was the last 17 years of his life, and that doesn't count. So either way, and the Mephoshim explained that Rashi is not counting Yaakov, but the first generation is Yehuda, the second generation is Peret, the third generation is Ketron. These are all part of the official genealogy of, ya- of Yaakov and Yehuda. And Chetzron has a son called Kalev. By the way, you might recognize Kalev as Kalev ben Yefunah because that's what he's called when he's one of the Meraglim, um, uh, et cetera, next week for those in Israel, the following week for those outside of Israel, talks about Kalev ben Yefunah. And we know he goes into Israel with Yehoshua because there's a whole story about what he does when he goes into Israel with Yehoshua. So Kalev ben Chetzron is what he's called in Divrei HaYomim. And the Gemara says Kalipen Chetzron is the same as and Yafuna, and explains, as the Gemara often does, why different names appear referring to the same people. And there's a reason why he's called Yafuna because he's Kondeh. He turned away May a He turned away from the plan of the Maraglit. So that's why he's really called Kalipen but he's also called Kalipen Yafuna. And we know that he is the great grandson of uh, Yehuda. And we know he goes into Eretz Israel. so he is the fourth generation. So Rashi has confirmed what Dor Revi means. Then the next part of the pasuk says why it's going to wait for four generations. The sin of the Amorites is not complete until then. So we learn from this a little bit about how Hashem acts in the world, how he punishes. Says Rashi, uh, um, that they should be sent away, exiled from their land until that time. So first of all, we have to say that the Emori, which is one of the seven nations, very soon we'll count how many nations there are, and it's not gonna be seven, but at the moment we'll say it's seven. So the Emory is only one of the seven nations, but in many respects, it's like the chief one. Um, there are many examples of how <laughs> the main issues that Abraham has or Qal Yisrael with the nations in Canaan is the Emory. So that would explain why the Emory is mentioned here distinctly. So um, continues Rashi, She'ein ha nifra min ha ad because Hashem does not punish from the nations until se'etah, their measure, actually means a se'ah, which is a measure of uh, grain, until their measure is full. So it seems that we're learning a theological principle here, that Hashem waits until people have sinned enough to get a big punishment. But it's only Minha ummat from the other nations. We know from other places that Hashem doesn't deal with Pali in that way, but as a sign of Chesed, He punishes us as we go along. Why is that a Chesed? So we can learn and we can do Teshuvah and we can correct what we've uh, done and we can correct a small transgression before it turns into a big transgression. Hashem does not have the same uh, Chesed for other nations. So in the case of the Emory, i.e. the seven nations, He waits before exiling them, before they fully deserve it. And they're not going to deserve it until four generations have passed. Yes, Sarah?
1: I guess, I, I know it's a rash issue, but I'm wondering if the Rav would be okay to answer. What do we do with like reconciling that idea that we know that the MRE are bound to sin to a certain extent that they will warrant being exiled from the land before that's-
0: You mean, do they happened. have Bukhira. Yeah. Is that your question? um i i haven't seen what other fortune say on this but my initial reaction is i think you are making the common error if i may say of confusing hashem's omniscient omniscience with a denial of bechira and it's a very very old question if hashem knows what's going to happen does that mean he takes away our bechira and the rambam says this is such a deep, 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 deep question that it's impossible to understand. Just take it from me that we can sort it. Hashem knows what's going to happen, uh, yet we still have bechira. I um, have a, uh, came across a solution which I think is very easy, very simple. So obviously I'm wrong because the Rambam says it's too hard to understand. But it seems to me that just as when we watch a repeat of a footy match, we know what's going to happen. Yet the people playing footy in the first place have the chira. But because we are looking at it from a different time perspective, we know what's going to happen. And Hashem knows what we're going to do because if you like, he's watching the repeat from some time in the future because Hashem is above time. So that's personally how I reconcile Hashem knows what's going to happen with everyone having free will. Now, I don't know if I've answered your question or not, because I don't know if there's a unique problem with this one i mean after all hashem says the egyptians are going to enslave the jews and after that i'm going to punish them that's what he said in two um, ago so here he's saying the Emirates are going to deserve to be punished um does that mean he's taking away the bechira i don't think so by the way you can also let me just throw in another answer which is also given um about the egyptians that you can say that hashem knows the egyptians as a whole are going to, as a nation are going to enslave the jews that doesn't mean each individual Egyptian, Hashem knows what's going to happen. I compare that to the radioactive decay, where we, we can estimate a half-life very precisely, because we know precisely how long it's going to take for half of the atoms to decay, but we don't know which atoms are going to decay. So it could be that Hashem knows that the emorites collectively are going to sin, but that doesn't take away the vachira from each individual emorite. So those answers, like, give you somebody to go on?
1: I really like that radioactive half-life example, but okay, that, that, I, don't know, I think
0: that, that's actually mine.
1: <laughs> I like it. I, um, what comes to mind though is, and I guess you've sort of addressed it through the pre-flood when there's this notion that God saw that man was acting wicked, wickedly and then for only then reacted to, sorry, I don't mean to attribute human terms to God, but like uh, reacting to what humankind believe. were doing. And like bring the flood as a consequence, not knowing that like the flood's going to be inevitable, but only like once seeing that human ah, actions well, were very wicked.
0: Yes, it depends what you mean by yinachem. Y- y- um, the problem is that word at the end of per- at the beginning of paragraph above our oh, operation, Hashem yinachem, which sounds like regretted what he had done. And Rashi gives a little support to say actually doesn't mean that; it means change his mind. But then again, why does he have to change his mind? But I think uh, I hear what you say, but I think Mitzrayim is a good parallel example to this one because Hashem definitely says the Egyptians are going to enslave the Jews and you're going to punish them. And he prepares the punishment long, long before the crime has been committed.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay, Okay. (laughs) move (laughs) on. Yeah, sorry, thank you.
0: No, no, thank you for the question. So Rashi um, adds, so we haven't quite finished, (coughs) having said, that Shaina Kodashbarakon Ha umma adsha tit male se he brings a passa to back up this idea shanema as it says in Yeshaya basas Basasa which is a um funny way of spelling seya with a doubled sumak aleph, like yurok rock and adam dam to make it intense um uh bashalcha teriveno um she will be sent away and you will quarrel with her. But the word basasata, sorry, sasa'a, there in Yeshaya means, again, when her seya, her measure, is full and then there will be a fight. Um, look there, um, it's, it, it, it's, a, it's a prophecy which is quite hard to work out what's going on, which I couldn't quite fully work out what's going on. But the Rashi brings it to give this same idea that nations, when their sayah, when their measure is full, that's when they get punished. So now Hashem has finished speaking at that moment and finished telling Abraham what's going to happen and we get to more vision, symbolism, which Rashi's going to explain. But first you have to explain a word. And it was the sun set. And darkness it was. And darkness it was. And behold, a fiery kiln or oven, the lapid ish, and a torch of fire, Asher Avar Ben which passed between these cut-up pieces, going back to the animals which were cut up. And Rashi said earlier that one of the ideas of cutting up the animals is a pshat is a simple idea, but that's how people made covenants. They cut up animals and they walked between them. Um, either to show that if you break the covenant you'll get cut up or to show that the two parties of the covenant are as one whole just like the two parts of the animal came from one and Rashi said that the fiery torch represents Hashem going through uh, making a passageway through the cut up animals in the way of people making a bris but that's he says there's something more to it here in this case but first he has to explain the words by so says Rashi Kamo vayehi marakim sakehem. So he compares it to two other examples of the f- structure of vayehi, and one of them is from the story of Yosef and Yosef's brothers, and it was they emptied their sacks. That's when they uh, found their money hidden in their sack. Uh, another pasuk from Malachim bet uh, around the death of Elisha, vayehi heim kovrim ish. And it was, they were burying a person. Kurama, that is to say, this thing was. What is the problem? The problem is a simple grammatical problem. Because when it says, if Hashemesh is the subject of Vayehi, Hashemesh is feminine. Now, I have to say that in um, somewhere else, there is... A yeah, peric lamud bet Tet. Rashi gives a few words which are both sometimes masculine and sometimes feminine, and Shemesh is one of them. But here, Shemesh is definitely feminine because the word ba'a which is referring to the sun, is in the feminine form. So, vayahi should also be in the feminine form, it should be in the feminine, and it isn't, it's vayahi in the masculine. But look at the examples Rashi brings. If it's Vayihi heim marakim sakehem, if Vayihi goes with the people who were emptying their sacks, that's a plural. So it should be vahayu. And the next one, Vayihi Haim kovrim ish, also is a plural. They were burying, plural. So it should be vahayu. But it isn't. So just as Vayihi is independent and doesn't take on the number of heim marakim sakehem or Haim kovrim ish, so it doesn't take on the gender either of Hashemesh. As Rashi says, what it means is, this thing happened. It's not about the sunset, but this thing happened. What happened? The sunset. So that's a interesting piece of grammar. And now we have, oh no, we have, before we get onto another piece of grammar, we have a um, understanding of what the vision was all about. Hashemesh ba shaka, it set. So the problem is, what does it mean the sun came? Because to be honest, the sun came could refer to sunrise just as well as it could refer to sunset. So Rashi has to tell you it means shaka, it set. Which, by the way, fits because in Pasuk Yud Bet, which was five Pasukim earlier, we read by Yehi Hashemesh Lavo, the sun was coming to set, was was setting. So now it has set. And we also know. In Posikud Bet after it set, um, there was ama chasheka, there was gadola, there was fear, and there was great darkness. So it makes sense that there Bahia Lavo referred to the sun setting, and we have the same idea here because Alata is another word for darkness, so it comes after Bahia Shemesh Ba'a, which Rashi says means the sunset, which makes sense because then it got dark. Says Rashi Alta Hayah, Hayom, the day got dark. Because um, I think that's one of those Rashi's where I very nervously say, I think this is a very simple Rashi. We don't know what Alata means. It's not a common word. Uh, alata Hayah, how did that come about? It came about because having the sun having set, the, dark, the day now grew dark. And the next comment of Rashi, Behold <laughs> the smoky furnace, etc., this was an allusion to him that the kingships, the kingdoms would fall into Gehenem, into what's mistranslated as hell um, we saw that Rashi said on when it says I will punish, I will judge the nation who uh, makes the people uh, enslaved and Rashi says, on the words for Gamma it's not just the Egyptians, but it's the four kingships as well. So for Rashi, they're explicitly included in what's being described here. Now you have a smoky furnace and a fiery torch, and it doesn't take much to work out, but fire is an allusion to the punishment of Gehenna. So who's going to be punished in Gehenna? Answer all those who enslave Israel, which Rashi has identified as not just Mitzrayim, but the four kingdoms as well. So I think this Rashi is saying, is answering the question, what is the vision alluding to? And Rashi's telling us what it's alluding to. Now we have a bit of grammar. <coughs> and this is not the only place that Rashi brings this grammatical point, because he's talking about how we understand the word Ba'a. Ba'a is a two letter root in the feminine form. And as we'll see, there's a certain ambiguity as to the tense of a two-letter root in the feminine form. So Rashi says, on the word ba'a, and I'm try, I'll try and uh, exaggerate where the stress should go, it's ba'a, because there is a note, part of the trop, on the bet, not on the aleph. So Rashi says, ta'amo mala. the accent is on the first syllable and therefore it's explained that it had already set. The sun had set already. It was in the past tense. It means the sun had set. The imhayatamo lamata the aleph. But if the stress were on the second syllable, on the aleph, he shocked. It would be explained as when it was setting now i've slightly translated it slightly differently shoket is actually present tense so it should say when it is setting um i don't think it really means that it means it would would have been when it was in the process of setting and it's impossible to say that because it's already said as i pointed out a moment ago the sun was setting and the passing of the smoky furnace was after this. So in Yudbet, the sun was setting. There's a delay. Then the smoky furnace passes through the pieces. So the sun must have already set. So Ba must be in the past tense. So even if there weren't a grammatical proof that it's in the past tense, it would have to be read in the past tense. So Rashi is using he's using the force of the pshat to confirm the grammatical rule that he's saying. Um, and this is a distinction in all words in the feminine gender of which the root has two letters. And there are many others. Um, interestingly, they all, they all refer to motion. Ba to come, come to get up, shove to return. They all, according to Rashi, have two-letter roots. There's a great debate between the trilateralists and the whether you can have two-letter roots, but Rashi says you can. K'SHAHATAM Lamala, When the accent is on the first syllable, L'SHON AVAR HU It's in the past tense. K'GON Like this case. Ukagon K'GON BA'A Had come. Now, um, I'm saying had really to emphasize that it's in the past. I don't mean it's in the pluperfect. perfect. But Rash, Rachel had come with the sheep when she met, um, when, when uh, Yaakov, when she arrived at Yaakov and Yaakov kissed her and then he rolled the stone off the rock. Kama alumati, my she my um, uh, bundle of wheat got up. Uh, that is Yosef repeating his dream, past tense, um, feminine verb, two-letter root. So the accent is on the first syllable because it happened in the past hinei shava yivmatech behold your uh, doesn't really mean yibum, your co-wife has gone back that is what nami said to uh Rut regarding orpa had returned and root didn't and she says nami says to root look orpa has shava she's returned why not you another two-letter root past tense or Who two-letter root feminine Accent on the first syllable, so it's past tense. And all those examples are unequivocal. They're not, there's no ambiguity. They must be read in the past tense, which I think is why Rashi brings it. But if you put the stress, the accent, on the second syllable, it's a present tense. Now, I would say it's a present or imperfect. In other words, continued action. Action that either is going on now or was going on but hadn't yet finished. Something that's happening now and is continuing. So just before Rachel ba'a, before Rachel actually came with the flocks, then the shepherds whom Yaakov asked um, about Lavan and his family, they said, here is Rachel ba'a, ba'a im She is coming, present tense, with the flock. Another example: Bebaa, U, hishava. So this is referring to the system of the uh, what we traditionally tell the little children was a beauty contest in the story of Esther. It wasn't really a beauty contest at all. it was something quite different. And it refers to each woman who was being tried out for the role of queen. In the evening, she would come to the king's chamber, and in the morning, she would return. By the way, this is why I was particular to say it's not just present tense. It's also imperfect in the sense of ongoing action in the past, but not yet completed or in the present. As opposed to what's technically called the perfect, the sun set. That was something that has happened. It's finished. It's not happening anymore. So why does Rashi go into this long explanation? I think because you have to understand what the word means, because this is a case where without Rashi's explanation, you would not know for sure how to read the word. So Rashi sometimes has to give you quite a bit of grammar to answer the question, how do we read the word in this case? And why is it different from other cases? Because there is this ambiguity in this case of two-letter two, word, two, sorry, two letter root in the past or present tense in the feminine. And the distinction is where the accent goes on the word. Right, I think we finished Pasuk yud Yes, indeed. So let's go on to Pasuk yud Hahu Karat Hashem et Avram Brit. On that day, Hashem made with Abraham a covenant. We are now summating what we have learned. This is very much the conclusion of the Perak uh, And it's now going to sum up and give us basically the terms of the covenant. lemur saying, To your descendants, Natati et ha'aretz Hazot. I have given this covenant. Land. Minaha Mitzrayim, um, from the river of Egypt, Adanaha Hagadol, until the river, the great river, Naha Parat, the Euphrates. So, first of all, Rashi says on the words, Lazaracha um, Natati. What does Rashi say? The statement of Hashem is as if it has been done. What's Rashi's problem? Rashi's problem is the tense of Natati. Natati says, I have given. And I think we talked a little bit last week or maybe recently about how this definitely hasn't happened yet. Abraham has not been given Eretz Israel. He is not the owner of Eretz Israel. When he wants to buy a burial place for his wife, he has to bargain and pay lots of money because it absolutely isn't his. And it doesn't belong to his descendants at this point. So how can Hashem say, I have given, in the past tense? So that's what Rashi comes to answer. He hasn't given. He's only said that he's going to give. But when Hashem says something, it's as if it's already happened, in the sense that there's absolutely no question that it will happen, because that's the nature of a covenant from Hashem. But it hasn't happened yet, so it's not really in the past tense. Then he says, Anahar <laughs> ha so, by the way, oh, okay. Naha Gadol, let's see what Rashi says. It's referring to the Euphrates. Rashi says the Pasuk says, Naha Gadol, Naha Parat. Why is it called Naha Gadol? It says, Rashi, davuk Yisrael. because it is connected or attached or stuck to Eretz Israel. It is called Gadol. Why should it not be called Gadol? Maybe it is a great river. So Rashi is going to say straight away because it's not. Even though it is the last of the four rivers that are described as coming out from Eden, as it said in Peret bet Pasuk Yudalot, the fourth river is Parat. <coughs> if you might remember quite an obscure uh, couple of pasukim uh, in the middle of the story of Gan Eden, The pasuk describes that there were four rivers that came out of Gan Eden, and the fourth is Parat. Now, you might say, how does that prove it's not Godol? Maybe all four rivers are Godol, and each one, maybe the first is very Godol, and the second is not quite as Godol, and the third is not quite as Godol, and the fourth is not quite as Godol, but it's still pretty Godol. And I think Rashi's saying, when the pasuk says, it's just like stuck on. There's one, two, three. Oh, and by the way, there's a four. The way the Torah mentions Naha Parat is, quite, is almost like a um, uh, obscure reference. It's not really part of the list. It's not certainly on the level of the gadlut of the other rivers. It's just there as number four. So because it says that in that fashion, we would say it is not a gadol, a Naha Gadol, which raises the question, why is it called a Naha Gadol? here so rashi has said it's because it's davuk Eret israel and then he says um marshal Hedyot." we can it's like a, a parable of a unsophisticated person Eved melech melech the servant of the king is the king that means if you come across the servant of a king because he or she is the servant of the king you must treat them with respect you must treat them with honor even though they're not the king but because they're attached to the king, they get in on the level of honor that is required. Or, uh, Join yourself to a potentate uh, or some powerful figure and people will bow to you. So if you get attached to something which deserves honor, you will get the honor. That's why nahaparat, which is a... Not much of a river, really. It's the fourth in the list, and it's described as merely number four. Nevertheless, here is called Nahal Gadol. Okay, you might be wondering, does this mean that the borders of Eritz Israel should stretch all the way to the Euphrates, which will include all of Jordan, half of Iraq, and much of Saudi Arabia, which would suggest that rather than uh, worry about whether or not the Israeli government should annex little bit of the west bank should it actually have its sights on all of jordan and half of iraq if the river euphrates is the border more seriously it's a a common uh, point but this verse is used by our enemies to say look this is the master plan of the zionist movement from the nile to the euphrates israel's got its eyes on all of that land and israel is based on its belief in its god-given right uh, trying to make a huge empire and take over a vast amount of territory. So the answer to that is what's coming next. And we now have a very interesting topic, um, which Rashi talks about and, and we will talk about. So just hold that question, that observation, when we read further. So Pasuk Yotet and Kaf and Kaf Aleph is just a list of the nations which, whose land is included in the promise to Abraham. So it goes like this: Et Hakani, VeEt Hakinisi, VeEt Hakadmoni, Et Hakivi, VeEt Haprizi, VeHeteravaim, VeEt HaEmori, VeEt Haknani, VeEt Hagilgashi, VeEt Hayavusi. And if you've been counting, you will notice there are ten nations listed. And we're more used to knowing about the seven nations. Now, from Pasuk Kaf, uh, sorry, Pasuk Kaf, starts the list of nations we're more familiar with. Chivi, Prizi, Rafa'im. Now, Rafa'im is not normally in the list of seven, but then Emory Kanani, Girgashi, Yavusi is. Let me just go out of order, if you don't mind. Let's just deal with Rafa'im. Rashi on Kaf says, Here Eretz Og. That's the land of Og. Shenea Marbo, Yikare So in the opening parakim of Devarim, where there's a lot of reference to the conquering of Sikhon and Og and the plan to conquer Eretz Israel, it's a rerun of what is described very briefly in Parsha Chukat, but it's discussed in much more depth in Devarim as a recap from what's been happening. There it says that the land of Og was also called the land of the Raphaim. Slight problem. Og is the brother of Sichon. Sichon is an emorite, which means Og is an emorite, not a rapha'ite. But that's actually not a problem, because Rashi is very careful. He says Eretz Og, it's the land of Og, and the land of Og is called Eretz Rapha'im. That does not imply that Og himself was a rapha'ite. And leaves open the possibility, which presumably is what Rashi means, is that Og captured the land of the Rafa'im, and he, as an Emirate, settled it there. So, the Rafa'im is equivalent to the Emori, sorry, is equivalent to the Og people. And then we've got our seven nations. But then if we go back to yud we've got three more. The Caini, the K'nizi, and the Kadmoni. What are these three nations? So Rashi answers that in Yud-Tet, and he says, Eser umat yesh kan. There are 10 nations listed here. no latan lahem ela shivar goyim. And it was not given to them, only seven nations. V'hashlosha, Edom, Umoav, V'amon. And the other three out of the 10 were given to Edom, Moab, and Ammon, the Haim, Kini, Kinesi, the Kadmoni. And they are the Kini, Kini, Kinesi, Kadmoni. Um, not that it means that those, that the Kini is another word for the Edomites and the Kinesi for the Moabites, etc. but rather Edom, Moab, and Ammon will take over the land of the Kini, Kinesi, and Kadmoni. Now, why should those three nations get part of Abraham's inheritance? because, to some extent, they were descendants of Abraham as well. Edom is Aesop. Aesop is Abraham's grandson. So he's entitled to a share of Abraham's inheritance. Ammon and Moab are the children of Lot. And Lot was the adopted son of Abraham. So he's also entitled to a share of the inheritance that goes to Ammon and Moab. Now, before I carry on with this Rashi, I refer you to Devarim um, Pereg Bet Pasuk He, where Hashem says to the Jews as they're coming through, Edom, Amon, Amoav, don't um, get into trouble with them, don't make a fight with them, because I will not give you their land. So this actually is in relation to Asaph um, and the land of Edom, but Rashi makes the point there. Peret bet pasuk I will not give you to inherit their land. Um, I'm sorry, I've just to cover a little bit further. This is Rashi in Devarim, Perak bet pasuk a. He says there, I gave. Ten nations to Abraham. Shiva lachem. I'm sorry. I need to go back a word. I'm sorry. There it says there is a Yerusha l'esav Natati. I gave a I Hashem gave a Yerusha an inheritance to Esau. So Rashi says there on the words Yerusha l'Aisav may Abraham Yerusha the inheritance came from Abraham, and then Rashi says Ese Amamim Natati Lo. Sorry, if you're not with me, this is Rashi, On and Peruk, Bet, Um, I gave Abraham 10 nations. Shiva, <inaudible> Lachem. Several of them go to you, the Jews. The Kini, the the Hain, Ammon, Moab, the Seir. And the other three nations go to Amon, Moab, and Seir, <inaudible> which is equivalent to Edom, which is equivalent to Lot, <inaudible> One of them to Esau and two of them to the children of Lot. Um, in the, and the reason he gives them to Lot, Rashi goes on to say, as a reward for keeping quiet when Avraham and Sarai and Lot went to Egypt. And Avraham said, Sarai was my sister. And Lot didn't spill the beans at that point, And Lot gets his reward. So, in Devarim, Peruk Bet Pasuk, Hey, Hashem says to the Bnei Israel, don't touch these lands. And Rashi says, because they are Yerusha, from Avraham to Amon, Moab and Edom. So, the seven nations go to the Jewish descendants of Abraham, and the other three nations go, if you like, to the non Jewish descendants of Abraham. So, our lands don't go to, from the Nile to the Euphrates. They're a narrower band. That's what we call Israel. And the other three nations get the wider part of the inheritance. But Rashi carries on, and he says, and by the way, there are there at least two. Gersaot, two versions of these words of Rashi, slightly different wording, but the same point. When he says, Atidim, <speaking> in, <Hebrew> in the future they will be an inheritance. La Atid, it's sorry, in the future, the in Yeshia, Edom Mishlach Yadam, Aman, Mashma'atam. Edom and Moav, um Will be will will be sent their hands against them, and the people of Ammon, Mashmatam, will, they will be their rulers. Now, this version of Rashi doesn't explicitly say what he means, but the Jews will inherit those three lands. But the other version of Rashi uh, says, Hashlosha Edom, Moav, la'khum <laughs> So those three lands, Edom, Moab and Ammon, took. And in the future, they will be an inheritance for the Jews in the future. So there will come a time when those three lands will go back or will go to the Jewish descendants of Avram after all. Now Rashi says that Hashem said in Devorah and Perakbet don't touch them because you're not allowed. Them. But Rashi also says in Devarim Perak Yutet Pasuk Chet, there, um, in Devarim Perak Yutet, we're talking about setting up cities of refuge for people for accidental murders to run to. And it says there that Moshe set up three cities in Eberli Arden, in the areas of Sichon and Og, which were captured before Israel proper. And then There will be three more cities in Israel proper. And then Hashem says, If Hashem expands your borders, As He promised to your fathers, And He gives to you all the land which He said to give to your fathers. So the Pasuk says, even after you've gone into Israel, there will come a time when there'll be a further expansion and that will be the fulfillment of the promise of giving all the land, which he promised to your fathers. And Rashi says there, in Devarim Peri Yutet Pasuk Peim Yarchiv Ka'ashe Nishpa lateit Lacha Eretz Kini Ve'Kenizi Ve'Kadmoni. So Rashi says clearly that in the interim, the Jews will get seven lands and Ammon, Moab, and Edom will each get one land, making a total of 10. But in the future, the Jews will get those three lands as well. In some, maybe he's talking about Mashiach, maybe before, maybe after, there will be a time when the Jews will get all 10 lands. By the way, there is a problem here because in the Boreham Hashem says very clearly, they are a Yerusha to Esau, Ammon, and Moab, and you're not allowed to touch them. So if they are a Yerusha, an inheritance, how can it be that you'll get them in the future? So I saw a beautiful answer to that. It's a little bit complicated, but to say that if you look carefully in the Britban of that the land is being transferred to the Jewish people through two mechanisms. One is a Yerusha from Abraham, an inheritance from Abraham, and the other is Natati, I, Hashem, have given it to you. In terms of the Yerusha, Abraham inherits, and then Abraham will um, pass on to his descendants, which includes his non-Jewish descendants. And the Jews can't touch that as a Yerusha. They get their Yerusha, their inheritance from Abraham, but they can't touch the inheritance that goes to Ammon and Moab and Edom. However, Hashem also gives them the lands, and these lands, including the other three, is Hashem's gift to give to Klal Yisrael, and Rashi is telling us that he will give them to us at a time in the future. Now, by the way, I haven't satisfactorily explained a bit about the Euphrates, because uh, the maps that we see of Ammon and Moab and Edom are basically uh, Transjordan, if you like. They're on the east side of the Yardin, sort of going up from the top of Saudi Arabia through Jordan up to the Golan Heights, nowhere near the Euphrates. So to say that the lands of Ammon, Moab and Edom, as we imagine where they were, covers all the area up to Nahaparat. Parat, it's a little bit hard to say. So we have to assume that in the future, those three lands will extend all the way to the Euphrates, and that's when they will be given to the Jewish people. So that is Rashi counting up to 10. And that concludes what Rashi has to say on Perek Tet Vav. And that's probably a good place to pause there. And next week, the scene changes from the macro to the micro to the domestic life of Avraham and Sarah and um, Hagar and Ishmael, etc. And that will be our theme in Yitzhashat for next week. Are there any
2: questions or observations? Hello. Yes, Benji. Um, can I ask? In the word vaihi, which is an interesting word, um, I know in this week's parish we have vaihi where it changes like vayhi, ha, um, punyta nim, and so the Jews are complaining. And I'm wondering if vayihi, hear, I've heard, I think somewhere, is often a reference to something bad about the come. But in the Brit, is that true, or is that just in that case? So I'm looking at if the Brit was hopefully a really good thing that happened. Uh,
0: very good question. I haven't got an answer. So we have. An that says introduces a good thing, and vayahi introduces a bad thing. Um, it said, and I think I think the first source is relation to Megillat Esther rosh, uh, and that's a bad thing. Lots of bad things happen be How that fits here, um, I don't know, and I haven't seen anyone on that. Um, you could say that the um, fiery, uh, the smoky furnace, and the fiery torch are allusions to bad things Although the rashi didn't say that rashi said on the contrary they're allusions to the punishment to the kingships the kingdoms which will enslave israel so um i have to say like i often do um sorry ian that needs further study thank you but, uh, good uh, good observation I
2: ask question, if I may? sorry I ask another question if i may please uh, Thing about sorry um about Nahar um, Prat and I know that Rashi said that it was mentioned last, and that's why he says you wouldn't think it was great because it was mentioned last. Something I was just looking back at Pasuk Bet where it's mentioned, all the other rivers in Pasuk Bet talk about the land that it's connected to, yep. um, and maybe and I'll, that's where Rashi directions on that Pasuk, that it's Hu prat and the Hu is referring to Israel, um, but it's just interesting maybe that because the Pasuk itself doesn't include any of the land, maybe you would have thought that it wouldn't have also been um it wouldn't have also been great because it didn't have any land maybe associated with it, as compared to all the other rivers have Evan Shoham and Eretz Kush and all that kind of thing. I mean, Rashi is explicit that it was because it was last. It doesn't mention anything about the land, but just something I noticed. Why does Pratt not have any land mentioned with it?
0: Well, I, I would say, I think basically the same point, but slightly differently. <coughs> I think the way yeah, we're in Bresht uh starting in Yud, uh, which talks about one river which splits into four. And each one gets uh the first river which Pishon gets two Psukim. Uh the second river is Gichon, which gets one Posuk, and a reference to uh Soveva call Erit Kush, and then Posak yudalad uh Nahashlishi, uh and what about that one? And then just stuck at the end of Posik Yudalad, the Ravi Huparat. So, not only is it lacking further description and a reference to a land which it goes to, but it's, I think, the way, I think the reason Rashi quotes the words, it's an afterthought. That was the word I was looking for before. It's presented as an afterthought. You've got this great river, this great river, this great river. Oh, and by the way, there's a fourth river. Um, And it tells it, well, I suppose it does name the others as as number one, two, and three. So, the fact that it names it as number four is in itself significant. I think Rashi is directing us to the way it's described as an afterthought but that fits in what you said because it doesn't have the grandeur and majesty and related significant land that the other three have. Okay. Thank you. Sarah?
1: Um, just on that question of um, I think when it talks about that, I, I could be mistaken, but I'd say like there are Vahis that are positive like that they lead to grief and there are those that lead to good things but i think they conclude that vayhi bimes are in general bad
0: Ah, but vayhi could go either way right that would answer it and that would explain why there's no significance in this one if it's only vayhi bime right okay yeah thank you very much okay thank you everyone we'll meet again in a week's time
1: thank you rav all the best